You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 317 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall, in the last episode, we talked about A.P. Hill's decision to send two-thirds of his corps on a scout toward Gettysburg on Wednesday, July 1st, 1863. We said that Robert E. Lee's plan was to concentrate or bring his army together in the vicinity of Cashtown, about eight miles northwest of Gettysburg. As A.P. Hill knew, Lee didn't want to confront any portion of the enemy Army of the Potomac before his own forces were united. And by the night of July 1st, eight of the Confederate Army's nine infantry divisions would have been assembled at Cashtown, and Lee would have been ready to engage the Federals. However, ultimately, Hill's decision to advance toward Gettysburg with Heath's and Pender's divisions led to the unraveling of Robert E. Lee's plans. The Army of Northern Virginia would never be assembled at Cashtown as Lee had intended. Just why A.P. Hill decided to advance two-thirds of his corps to Gettysburg on the morning of July 1st is still something of a mystery especially since it's clear that Hill was under no obligation to advance any troops, let alone two divisions, to Gettysburg that day. He could have easily relayed Pettigrew's June 30th report of enemy contact to Lee and awaited orders from the Confederate Army commander. It's possible that Lee might have ordered an advance of some force to Gettysburg, since Lee might have wanted more information about the enemy that Pettigrew encountered there. And without any rebel cavalry on hand, Confederate infantry would have been the only available force to gather such intelligence. But instead of leaving that decision to Lee, Hill decided to advance 15,000 men to Gettysburg on the morning of July 1st on his own initiative. And while it's true that A.P. Hill sent Robert E. Lee word of this advance to Gettysburg, Lee probably, almost certainly, assumed Hill would be operating under his, that is, Lee's, stated desire to avoid major fighting until the entire Confederate Army was assembled. At any rate, while it's unclear why A.P. Hill decided to march such a large force to Gettysburg that day, 
What is abundantly clear is that his decision was a major factor in the fact that serious fighting broke out there on July 1st. By the end of the last show, as you guys will recall, we were about two and a half miles outside of town, at the Chambersburg Pike, where shots had been exchanged between Harry Heath's Confederate skirmishers, who had spread out along Marsh Creek, and John Buford's Union cavalrymen, who were posted on Knoxlin Ridge. A rebel cannon had even added its voice to the mix, and the Battle of Gettysburg was officially underway. Starting with last week's show, and with this episode, and then over the next couple of shows, what we'll see is that there were several, or actually five, subordinate commanders whose decisions, when taken together, resulted in a battle being fought at Gettysburg starting on July 1st, even though neither Robert E. Lee nor George Meade necessarily intended for that to happen. The first of those subordinate commanders is A.P. Hill, and then also on the Confederate side is Harry Heath, who we met last week, and who we'll talk more about here shortly. But actually, the next officer whose decisions we want to look at more closely is on the Federal side, and that's John Buford. As we know, and as Confederate Brigade Commander Johnston Pettigrew suspected, The Yankees Pettigrew encountered at Gettysburg on June 30th were not militia. They were two brigades of federal cavalry from the Army of the Potomac, commanded by Brigadier General John Buford. As the Army of the Potomac marched through Maryland toward the Pennsylvania state line, Buford's task was twofold. One, he was to guard the left flank of the army as it advanced northward toward the enemy. And two, he was to gather information concerning the whereabouts and intentions of the rebel army. On June 29th, Buford had received orders from Alfred Pleasanton, the army's cavalry chief, directing him to proceed to Gettysburg to, quote, cover and protect the front, end quote. Buford's orders directed him to be at Gettysburg no later than the night of June 30th, which, as we know, he accomplished with time to spare, since the lead elements of his force rode into town sometime before noon on Tuesday the 30th, and were seen by Pettigrew. From a brief meeting with John Reynolds, who was commanding the Army of the Potomac's left wing, Buford knew that the whole army was moving forward toward the Pennsylvania line along a front about 25 miles wide. And if all went according to plan, the marching orders for July 1st would bring the army up so that the forward element of its left wing, that is, Reynolds' own 1st Corps, would be at Gettysburg, while Howard's 11th and Sickles' 3rd Corps would be close by, within supporting distance. When Pettigrew decided to pull his North Carolina brigade back to Cashtown without getting involved in a fight on June 30th, Buford didn't pursue the Confederates. Instead, he decided to place one of his brigades there astride the Chambersburg Pike in case Pettigrew's force, or any other rebels, returned the next day along that main road from Cashtown. 
Buford deployed his other brigade to cover the roads that approached Gettysburg from the north because he had information that elements of the rebel army might be marching towards Gettysburg from the direction of Carlisle. That would be the Confederates of Ewell's Corps, and Buford's information regarding rebels approaching from that direction, that is from the north, was correct, as we'll see in a future episode. Exactly. In any case, during the afternoon and evening of June 30th, Buford deployed the cavalrymen from his two brigades so that they would be in a position to fight a delaying action against any Confederates that approached Gettysburg from the north or west on July 1st. Buford was actually missing his 3rd Brigade, left behind at Mechanicstown, Maryland. So to make a fight of it at Gettysburg, he had some 2,790 officers and men in the two brigades led by Colonels William Gamble and Thomas Devon, as well as a six-gun battery of horse artillery commanded by Lieutenant John Califf. In his report of August 27, 1863, Buford indicated that his decision to fight a delaying action at Gettysburg on the morning of July 1st was motivated by his desire, quote, to prevent the enemy from getting the town before our army could get up, end quote. He then, then went on to state that, quote, my arrangements were made for entertaining the enemy until General Reynolds could reach the scene. And so, in the absence of any further orders to move on in the morning or to withdraw, his duty, as John Buford saw it, was to remain at Gettysburg to carry out the last orders he'd received, that is to, quote, cover and protect the front, end quote, until the Federal infantry came up. After setting up his headquarters at the Eagle Hotel on Chambersburg Street in town, Buford called together his officers on the evening of June 30th and briefed them on what to expect the next day and make sure their commands were ready for the fighting he anticipated. It was when Tom Devon expressed confidence that his troopers would easily handle anything the enemy threw at him over the next 24 hours that a grim-faced Buford replied, No, you won't. They will attack you in the morning, and they will come booming, skirmishers three deep. You will have to fight like the devil to hold your own until supports arrive. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Battle of Gettysburg began on the morning of July 1st on a series of ridgelines west of town as Buford's Union cavalrymen, fighting dismounted, stubbornly resisted the advance of Harry Heath's Confederate infantry. Buford, a level-headed veteran soldier, had a good eye for terrain, and that morning he would make the most of it. Like waves approaching the shore, the ground west of Gettysburg rose and fell to form a succession of roughly parallel ridge lines, each running generally north-south and each bisected by the northwest-southeast running Chambersburg Pike. It was ground well suited for Buford's designs, since he planned a defense in depth, with his troopers holding on for as long as possible to each of these successive ridge lines before falling back to McPherson's Ridge, where he established his main line of defense. Armed with single-shot, breech-loading carbines, Buford's men would fight dismounted. But any advantage they might have had with their weapons, which allowed for a more rapid rate of fire, was negated by the fact that every fourth man was removed from the firing line to hold horses. Plus, the Federals would be heavily outnumbered. Buford's entire command at Gettysburg totaled not even 2,900 men, while Heath's division alone numbered 7,500. The one advantage Buford and his troopers held was not in their weapons, nor even their defensive positions, but that Buford knew what was likely coming against him that morning, while Heath did not. Heath, in the forefront of the Confederate advance, was neither expecting nor prepared for any serious resistance as he marched his division to Gettysburg. As we said in the last show, Brigadier General James Archer's brigade was leading Heath's column, and after running into resistance in the form of the Federal cavalrymen on Knoxland Ridge, Archer had responded by sending forward several hundred of his men as skirmishers, while Pegram's cannon had set up shop right in the middle of the road, in front of the Samuel Lore farm, and fired off a few shells toward the Yankees over across Marsh Creek. On the Federal side, Buford had positioned Gamble's brigade to cover the Chambersburg Pike, the route by which the Confederates had approached Gettysburg yesterday, and the road they'd most likely return upon today. Then, to Gamble's right, the troopers of Devon's brigade stretched northward in a lengthy, semicircular line, covering the roads that led into town from the north and east. Advanced pickets, or vedettes as they're called when it's mounted sentries, were stationed well to the front of the main cavalry line, keeping alert for any enemy activity. It was some of those vedettes from the 8th Illinois Cavalry stationed on Whistler's Ridge who spotted Heath's column approaching Marsh Creek. It was Lieutenant Marcellus Jones of the 8th Illinois Company E who fired the first shot of the battle at about 7.30 a.m. On the Confederate side, Pegram's three-inch ordnance rifle deployed in the roadway and fired off a few shells, while Archer's skirmishers fanned out on either side of the Chambersburg Pike, and then pushed ahead through the brush and brambles, slogged through the swampy ground along the creek, and then advanced up the gentle slope of the ridgeline beyond. Ephraim Whistler's blacksmith shop was located up there, just alongside the road on Knoxland Ridge. 
you can still examine bricks on the western side of the Whistler home today and see damage from Confederate bullets. On the morning of July 1st, after the first rebel cannon shot, Mr. Whistler rather unwisely came out of his house and stood right in the middle of the pike to see what was going on. Another Confederate shell came barreling in, hit the road near Whistler's feet, and showered the blacksmith with gravel and dirt. A terrified Whistler ran back into his home, where, apparently so shaken by the experience, he died of heart failure shortly after the battle. As archer skirmishers pressed forward, vedettes from the 12th Illinois Cavalry to the 8th Illinois' right and from the 8th New York Cavalry to their left had ridden over to the Chambersburg Pike to join in the action, and it wasn't long before a lively exchange of small arms fire was taking place between the advancing rebels and dismounted Yankee horsemen. As the firing increased, more Federal cavalrymen from the picket line's reserve post back on Hers Ridge, rode west to bolster the Union position on Knoxland Ridge as the Confederate skirmishers began pressing the blue-clad troopers there in earnest. Then, shortly after 8 a.m., as the rebel skirmishers approached within a 100 yards, the Federal cavalrymen began withdrawing from Knoxland Ridge and slipping back slowly east toward Gettysburg. When the initial firing got underway, the horses of the dismounted Yankees had been taken to the rear, all the way back to near the Lutheran Seminary on the outskirts of town, so now the troopers fell back on foot. They gave ground slowly, falling back unhurriedly, using whatever cover was available, loading as they withdrew, and turning every now and then to deliver a well-aimed shot. The Federals' first withdrawal took them back to Belmont Schoolhouse Ridge, where they set up another defensive line. Up until now, the Yankee cavalrymen had done exactly as they were trained and expected to do. That is, they had made the enemy column deploy skirmishers and slowed down the Confederates' advance toward Gettysburg. They had also kept the Confederate commanders wondering who and what was protecting the town. You see, the rebels hadn't yet identified their opponents as veteran federal cavalry, and many of Heath's soldiers were still thinking they'd encountered only some state militia or local home guard that, not surprisingly, was retreating when the bullets started flying. Archer's skirmish line continued pressing forward, pushing the Yankees ahead of them, while the rest of Heath's division stayed in their column of march and steadily moved up the road behind the skirmishers. Colonel Burkett Fry, commander of the 13th Alabama, the regiment at the head of the rebel column, recalled that the skirmishers were only about a hundred paces in front as the division advanced eastward along the Chambersburg Pike. At this point, only a few hundred Federal cavalrymen were on hand to slow down Heath's 7,500 Confederates. But Buford and his brigade and regimental commanders had by this time been notified of the enemy advance, and buglers were sounding the alarm among the cavalry camps pitched along Seminary Ridge and Oak Ridge. The troopers prepared for battle, while several hundred men from Gamble's brigade hurriedly galloped west to Hers Ridge, the most prominent terrain feature the Confederates would encounter before reaching McPherson's Ridge. 
Once again at Hersridge, only three out of every four Federals would actually be on the firing line, because when Gamble's men reached the ridge line, their horses too were taken to the rear, back east of the seminary. And so, when the rebel skirmishers pushed the Yankees off Belmont Schoolhouse Ridge about 9 a.m., they saw, just a short distance ahead of them, Hers Ridge, where about 700 of Gamble's dismounted troopers formed a more substantial skirmish line. Here, the Union cavalrymen were able to keep up a heavy rate of fire with their single-shot carbines, compared with Confederate infantry's muzzle loaders. But the heavily outnumbered Federals knew they couldn't hold out here forever, and would soon have to fall back to McPherson's Ridge, where Buford intended to establish his main line of defense, and where he would make his stand, hoping, 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 that John Reynolds' Federal infantry would arrive in time. My aunt and I were quite alone, our farmer having gone away with the horses in the hope of hiding them in the hills. We were in the very center of the first shock of battle between Hill's troops and the advance line of Buford's cavalry. Horses and men were falling under our eyes by shots from an unseen foe, and the confusion became greater every moment. Filled with alarm and terror, we locked all the doors and rushed to the second floor and threw open the shutters of the west window. One glance only, and a half-spent miniball from the woods crashed into the shutter, close to my aunt's ear. This one glance showed us that a large field between the barn and the woods concealed hundreds of gray, crouching figures, stealthily advancing under its cover, and picking off every cavalryman who appeared for an instant in sight. An officer's horse just under the window was shot, and the officer fell to the ground. Look, we shrieked at him, the field is full of rebels. Leave the window, he shouted in return, or you will be killed. We needed no second warning and rushed to the roof. Here the whole landscape for miles around unrolled like a panorama below us. What a spectacle! It seemed as though the fields and woods had been sown with dragon's teeth, for everywhere had sprung up armed men, where about an hour ago only grass and flowers grew. Amelia E. Harmon, resident of Gettysburg. Gamble's troopers held on to Hers Ridge for about 30 minutes before being forced to withdraw by the steadily advancing rebel skirmishers and by shellfire from Willie Pegram's artillery, which he had brought up and deployed on Belmont Schoolhouse Ridge. Lieutenant Marcellus Jones, who had fired the first shot of the battle earlier with a sharps carbine, later remembered how, quote, the, smart, the smoke from our carbines was visible along the entire line, at last we yielded to superior numbers and slowly retired down the hill, keeping up a hot fire. As Gamble's men pulled back, they descended into the shallow valley between Hers Ridge and McPherson's Ridge, and there some of the Federals paused to cool off the overheated barrels of their carbines in the waters of a small creek called Willoughby's Run. 
Once his troopers were pushed off Hur's Ridge, Buford deployed a heavy skirmish line facing west in the shallow valley in front of McPherson's Ridge, while he set up his main battle line there on the ridge line and on its northern extension, Oak Ridge. Gamble's brigade formed line of battle south of the Chambersburg Pike and north a short distance to the railroad cut, while troopers of Devon's brigade continued the line beyond there, extending it all the way north to the Mumisburg Road. On the Confederate side, Harry Heath hadn't expected to run into such stiff resistance. After the war, he candidly admitted as much, and thinking at first that he just faced militia and not veteran troops from the Army of the Potomac, he wrote that he was careless about the disposition of his forces that morning. As a result, the Confederate advance took nearly 90 minutes to cover the single mile between Knoxland Ridge and Hers Ridge. Each of those 90 minutes was precious, since John Buford was fighting for time, time for the Federal infantry to get to Gettysburg. Now, as Heath gazed eastward from Hers Ridge to McPherson's Ridge at Buford's main defensive line, what he saw convinced him it was, quote, evident that there were infantry, cavalry, and artillery in and around the town, end quote. Well, he was wrong about the infantry, since as yet there were no Yankee foot soldiers on the scene. But nevertheless, the presence of Buford's line atop McPherson's Ridge ought to have given Heath pause. In fact, if Harry Heath had acted in accordance with his orders not to engage in any serious fighting, he would have immediately halted and sent word back to A.P. Hill that he had run into stiff resistance and was awaiting further instructions. But instead, Heath chose not to notify Hill and prepared to press the issue and engage the Yankees across the way. And yes, Heath's decision here to force an engagement makes him the third of our subordinate commanders whose decisions, when taken together, resulted in a battle being fought at Gettysburg starting on July 1st, even though neither Robert E. Lee nor George Meade necessarily intended for that to happen. Exactly. At any rate, from Hur's Ridge, as he viewed the Federals' much stronger line spread out over on the next ridge, Harry Heath concluded that skirmishers would no longer be enough to continue pushing back the Yankees. And so he sent orders for both Archer and Brigadier General Joseph Davis, following behind Archer, to deploy their brigades from column of march into lines of battle. On the Chambersburg Pike, from his vantage point with Brockenbrough's brigade, a bit farther back in the division column, the brigade chaplain could see Archer's lead regiments reach the crest of Hers Ridge and then begin to, quote, file to the right off the road and march by column of fours at right angles to the road and then begin forming battle lines. Joe Davis's brigade turned off the road to the left so that the two Confederate brigades would present one long line of battle extending north and south of the Chambersburg Pike. As they climbed the western slope of Hurst Ridge, skirmishers from the 5th Alabama Battalion had passed a small wooden cabin guarded by a noisy dog. When the dog's owner appeared, he asked the rebel soldiers what they were there for. The Alabamans replied that a battle was about to be fought. 
By who? the man asked. By General Lee and the Yankees, they replied. The man abruptly turned and started to run off, shouting, Tell Lee to hold on just a little until I get my cow in out of the pasture. The men from the 5th Alabama Battalion laughed and moved on. The civilian was apparently still out fetching his cow when, not long afterward, some men from the 13th Alabama came along. When the dog, still guarding its master's cabin, snarled at them, one of the rebel soldiers shot it. The morning of the eventful 1st of July came bright and hot. After breakfast, I had ordered my horse and was prepared to make a hasty inspection of Gettysburg there to make some purchases for our mess, when an orderly from General Buford galloped up with the information that the enemy were advancing and to prepare for action at once. In an incredibly short time, our bivouac was broken and baggage and caissons sent to the rear. For the purpose of deceiving the enemy as to his strength, it was part of General Buford's plan to cover as large a front as possible with my battery, his only artillery. He therefore instructed me to post two guns on the right of the pike, two on the left, and the remaining two still further to the left, where the 8th New York Cavalry was covering the left flank. I had scarcely completed the posting of this left section when Lieutenant Roeder opened on the right of the pike, his left piece being the opening gun, directed against a column beyond Willoughby's Run, where our cavalry, dismounted, was stoutly resisting the advance of Hill's infantry. The other guns now opened, which drew the artillery of the enemy, and my four guns on the right were soon hotly engaged. Seeing the batteries so greatly outnumbered, I directed the firing to be made slowly and deliberately, and reported to Buford what was in my front. The battle was now developing, and the demonic whirr of the rifled shot the ping of the bursting shell, and the wicked zip of the bullet as it hurried by, filled the air. While riding to the guns on the left, I met General Buford, accompanied by a bugler only, and calmly smoking his pipe. He had just made an inspection of the field and remarked, Our men are in a pretty hot pocket, but my boy, we must hold this position until the infantry come up. Just as he finished speaking, a shell burst so near to us that both of our horses reared with fright, but all escaped injury. By this time the wounded were being brought to the rear, and temporary field hospitals were established in the vicinity of the seminary. Here also were my caissons. As I joined the left guns again, there came out of McPherson's woods in our front a double line of battle in gray, and not over a thousand yards distant. It was Archer's Brigade, and their battle flags looked redder and bloodier in the strong July sun than I had ever seen them before. Lieutenant John H. Califf, Battery A, 2nd U.S. Artillery. With the Federal skirmishers feverishly plugging away, Archer deployed his 1,200 men south of the pike, 
while Davis, with more than 1,700 men, lined up his regiments north of the roadway. All of this took time, however, and it would take nearly an hour for Archer and Davis to fully deploy from column into line of battle and start forward. Meanwhile, Willie Pegram brought his guns up, positioning them on Hearst Ridge, and began banging away at the Yankees over on McPherson's Ridge. There were five batteries under Pegram's command, and with the exception of a South Carolina battery, they were all Virginians. It's thought 15 or 16 rebel cannon in total unlimbered on Hur's Ridge, and when that happened, the Confederates achieved an artillery superiority on the battlefield that they wouldn't relinquish the rest of the day. When the Confederate pieces on Hur's Ridge opened fire, their main target, it seemed, was the six guns of Lieutenant John Caleb's battery, which was Buford's only artillery support. Caleb's guns were a key element in Buford's plan for the defense of McPherson's Ridge, and Buford wanted the guns, a half-dozen three-inch rifles, spread out in order to give the impression of greater Federal artillery strength. The heavily outgunned Union artillerymen stood nobly to their pieces while the air around them filled with shot and shell. Buford gritted his teeth and prepared for another Confederate push. He was determined to hold McPherson's Ridge as long as possible, but he knew that once the Confederate infantry, which had deployed into lines of battle over across the way, started forward, the action would intensify quickly. Not to put too fine a point on it, but the moment of crisis was at hand. Buford realized his men had done all he had asked of them in delaying, for nearly two hours, the enemy advance but now time was running desperately short. Buford had earlier sent an urgent message to Reynolds, telling him that Confederate forces were advancing in strength and urging him to come forward to Gettysburg quickly. The grounds of the Lutheran Seminary, located near the northern end of Seminary Ridge, to which it gives its name, provides a splendid view over the shallow valley, separating it from McPherson's Ridge about 600 yards to the west. From the cupola atop the old dorm building, the view is extended considerably, and Buford had used it as an observation post that morning, alternating time spent up there with riding out to his lines on McPherson's Ridge to encourage his men. While Buford was up and down, his signal officer, Lieutenant Aaron Jerome, had remained perched in the cupola, taking advantage of the excellent field of view it offered. And about a quarter after nine, Jerome turned his powerful telescope southward and saw a most welcome sight, the head of a column of marching Federal infantry. As Jerome recalled, quote, The engagement was desperate, as we were opposed to the whole of Hill's Corps. We held them in check fully two hours and were nearly overpowered when, in looking about the country, I saw the corps flag of General Reynolds, end quote. Alone in the cupola, the lieutenant called down for one of his men to locate Buford and give him the good news. Buford rode over, climbed up into the cupola, and borrowed the signal officer's spyglass. Spotting the advancing blue column, Buford, with a sigh of relief, said, Now we can hold the place. 
Shortly after 10 a.m., Reynolds himself and his staff came galloping up to the old dorm, and when he spotted Buford up in the cupola, Reynolds called out, What's the matter, John? To which Buford famously replied, The devil's to pay. Buford climbed down, and after the two men greeted one another, they rode out to McPherson's Ridge so that Reynolds could inspect the ground and see the situation for himself. With the hard-pressed Union horsemen barely hanging on, Reynolds realized he was going to be cutting it close. But when he asked Buford if he could hold out until the First Corps came up, the tough cavalryman answered, I reckon I can. And with that, John Reynolds galloped back to hurry on his troops. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Devil's to Pay, John Buford at Gettysburg by Eric J. Wittenberg. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also on the show's website, you can find links to the podcast Twitter feed and Facebook page, as well as our contact information and some photos so you can put faces to the voices you hear. Speaking of the voices you hear, we wanted to let you know that we're both still well and both still working, for which we're extremely thankful. Uh, Colorado is under a statewide stay-at-home order, but Tracy works for a county early childhood education program and has been able to keep working from home so far. Um, I'm still headed out to work every day since I work at Foothills Hospital in Boulder and, well, you know, we're still open for business. Uh, On the bright side, the commute into and out of Boulder has been a breeze this past week with so few other cars on the road. Silver lining. Right. Um, Anyway, we've both been very humbled that even in these crazy, anxious days that we're living through, some of you are still signing up for the Strawfit Brigade and supporting the podcast. That really just blows us away, and we can't tell you how much we appreciate it. This past week, William, Carla, Harry, Alex, Wallace, Tony, Betty, and John became members over on Patreon. And we want to thank Ryan and Sue for their donations this past week, and also for their wonderful notes. All right, and thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.